not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. is the Massachusetts Performance Podcast, brought to you by Matthew Micheroni and Bobby Dattero. Hey guys, it's Mass Performance Podcast. We're back today, and today we're going to talk about core exercises, right? We'll refer to, refer to them as trunk exercises, but I know everyone always thinks, right, core, core, core just realized trunk is the core. So today we're going to go over some basic progressions and regressions that we've used with our uh, college, collegiate sector, private sector, gen pop clients, so on and so forth. So to start off, Bobby's going to uh, first bring us into what's going on at his facility. So tell us, uh, catch us up about Evolution Sports Performance. It's been a week or two since we last talked. Yeah, I mean, we're still, uh, we're still grinding away. It's pretty good. Um... We had a couple sign-ups last week. We got a couple more people interested. Um, people are ramping up going into the spring sports season, which we are probably about six, maybe eight or so weeks out. Um, we've also had a really good contingent of people that have been here for a little bit. So I've actually had to get uh, I've actually had to get a little creative with some programming. So I've got some younger kids hitting some barbell deadlifts that moving them away from the the hex bar. Um, I got some kids who are doing some cleans that actually look pretty good. Um, actually, I know it's been a hot topic issue lately was um, a couple videos of some very, very poor cleans kind of circulating the Internet. And, Everyone's seen uh, those ones. Yeah, and it's, it's a couple high school kids. I, I believe they were either unsupervised or whoever was, you know, literally supervising them wasn't actually coaching them. So. You know, you can't blame the kids. There probably isn't a strength coach, you know, at fault there. But, um, you know, just it just it just makes you almost take for granted sometimes that, you know, we actually do know what we're talking about. And, you know, we actually can coach these kids to um, do things the right way and do things that look good. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just a real advantage. And it, it's just unfortunate that that stuff still happens, and I know it does, because weight rooms are unsupervised, and not, you're never going to get a strength coach in every weight room. But um, it, it, it's, I, I almost, like, take for granted sometimes the fact that, you know, we do know what we know, and we can get these kids to do things that, you know, aren't absolute crap. So that was, that's, yeah, that's, that's just a, lately that's kind of, like, something that kind of went through my head. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, uh, strength coaches are very underutilized, and now that we're kind of prominent in the collegiate sector and the private sector, where like even Division three schools have strength coaches, it hasn't uh, metastasized or grown to the high school setting yet, where a lot of times it's still that, that the football coach who's running it, or it's like the track and uh, field coach who's the full-time track and field coach, uh, part-time like lunch man but also part-time strength and conditioning coach. And, yes, he has a CSCS, 
but he doesn't necessarily have that experience. He doesn't have, he doesn't understand everything completely, but he's just running the program he got from his buddy. And it's not necessarily wrong because he's probably running it to the best of his ability, but it's still not correct. Right. It just sucks because I, I don't know if we're ever going to get to a point where a public high school is going to be able to employ a full-time strength coach. There'll probably still be a part-time person, which we then know it's not going to be someone from our industry because, you know, we can't, you know, you can't take a strength coach, ask them to work or ask them to occupy, you know, the big chunk of the training day and then, you know, not pay them a reasonable salary. So that was tough. Yeah, I know some colleges have gotten to paid interns where they won't pay them to be an intern at the school. So there's uh, some school down south where it's like they'll have interns who already have their CSDS and are being taught by the full-time staff at the collegiate program. And now you can't get paid by both high school and college. So what they'll do is the school will pay them, the high school will pay them, and they'll just volunteer at the college, but it's like hand-in-hand. It's like, uh, you know what I mean? You have to be part of that program, but then they'll send them out to a high school to work four hours a day, five days a week. And you have to run, like, one or two teams at the college setting. And, like, that has to be better than a lot of what's going on. Yeah, because, well, a lot of people – so a lot of people don't like that because, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, interns are leading your weight row. Well, just because they're an intern doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. Who trained them? If someone yeah. of if someone who actually – like, with an actual reputation and experience – now, this is not just experience with coaching athletes, talking about training coaches – if someone's good at training coaches, just because they're still in school and they're not getting a true, um, you know, part-time, full-time job, it's an internship with a, with like, at minimum wage or, you know, they're getting their college credit, they're doing their thing. As long as whoever's training these people knows what they're doing, you could have a very deadly situation. Uh, like, a, a de- deadly is the wrong word because I'm, I'm speaking of a good thing, like, when you say sometimes you say like someone's deadly, it's like they're deadly good, but it's it's a really really advantageous thing if someone can train a coach to go into the, these high schools and do a really really good job because you know because it, it's better than what they're getting. You know, you get someone who's a full time sub who maybe played football in high school and now they're monitoring the weight room and it's just that that's not coaching. So yeah. I mean, to build off that, I know for uh, a couple people, Springfield has the same idea. Like, they have their master's program for strength and conditioning and uh, similar ones. But not everyone there actually ends up working at the school. They also send a couple out each semester to go work at the high schools in the area, and they're in charge. And I was like, if you, you know, a Springfield student who's in the master's program with that supervision is probably going to be a better, even though it's for one or two semesters or a year at a time, than what you'll get paying someone part-time who probably has their CSCS, like we said, but didn't have that necessary experience. And I think Merrimack's starting to do the same thing. They have a big fellowship at their school, and I, I know they're sending people to BC now to be fellows, but it wouldn't shock me if in this area they start sending them out to other high schools, whether that's public or private, I don't know, but I could see that happening because administrators, they want someone, they believe in it, but they don't want to pay that full salary. Right. That almost makes me wonder. If, it almost makes me wonder from the private setting if there's something I can do about that. It might be something to uh, might be something to look into. It might be something uh, you could work into. You know, you have your intern program. Uh, start really pumping Bridgewater. Bring them over, and then uh, reach out to some of the private high schools in the area part time. Send them over. Because I mean, at that age, worst case, if you don't have racks to bring and they don't have a weight room, just buy a couple more kettlebells, some dumbbells, and it's going to probably be better than what they have. Right. No, that's I something to think about. 
Yeah, I think it's a good point. All right, guys, we got off track, so now we're going to start with our core progressions. So when you come in for your anti-extension, Bobby, what do you really like to start your clients or, you know, your high school athletes with? So I actually like a um, – I like two two variations that I've, I've come to. Um, I really like a kettlebell pullover, so athlete lies supine on their back, knees are bent, and feet are off the ground, and they just reach the kettlebell behind them. That's something that I like because it's going to not only uh, teach the rib cage control, but it's also going to get them a little bit of shoulder mobility benefit since most of my athletes don't have it anyway. And we know that those two things are linked, core control and shoulder mobility. I like that on um, one of their days. I also yeah. like a uh, I like a physio ball body saw. I think it's one of those things where we can take a plank but it, it gives me it gives me something to allow the athlete to count off on their own. What I really like to do at time plank, I would. The only problem that I have specifically with a time plank is my athletes all have their own program. So I could have one athlete doing a 20-second plank, one athlete needing a 40-second plank, another athlete is doing a completely different exercise, and then I have three or four more questions coming from different athletes. So um in ter- I, in terms of like the plank itself because that's typically your gold standard for anti-extension exercises i actually don't use it a ton i would agree i think i don't use the plank as much uh either mainly due to time but also i think it's something that athletes do a crap ton on their own too a lot of times you'll see in my setting they'll come in and they'll plank right away they'll do it on their own they'll do extra core work and that's so ingrained in society through instagram twitter and uh, everyone, that everyone just planks, where it's like, I don't need to always do it because I'm willing to put money. Their coaches do it with them. They do it on their own. It's part. Of, it's like one of the five things they know about the core. Exactly. Um, I completely agree with you. That's a really good point. Now, with that, I would say I do like the plank, but my starting progression for anti-extension is I've actually moved away from being on the floor, and I like the idea of vertical core, where I'm starting just to do maybe uh, – a plate hold or a goblet hold where they're standing in that athletic stance, little bend in the knee, vertical torso, and they're holding the plate away from them for that set period of time. If that makes okay, sense. Okay, that's actually, that's something I, I haven't used a ton, like that type um, of movement. I built it off the goblet squat. I definitely, if I, to say I thought of it would be a lie. I've seen it before and I liked it, and I just think it's easier to control because an example is I think of the plank when you get a bunch of people going, some people will be flexed, some will be extended, butts are up in the air, air, and you can go around and fix them. But if you really think of time management, you go fix them on the ground, you fix athlete A, push his butt down, athlete B has his rib is extended, you unextend him, you get to athlete C and D, and generally by the fourth person, time's up. And now you exactly. can do it, and it's not bad to do. I will, like to say I haven't used it once in a while is a lie, I have. But I think when everyone's standing straight up, it's, they just for some reason I've noticed they can connect better in understanding, oh, push your ribs down. Oh, gotcha. Push your butt forward. Oh, makes sense. Kettlebell a little further or dumbbell a little further off the chest. Boom. And then if you make them hold, hold, you pro- I progress that with maybe we might march in place. After we might march in place, you might do a one-legged hold. And now we're working like that anti-extension and lateral flexion. And I think it's just easier to progress and easier to fix in a math setting. No, that's a good point. That's something I might have to mess around with and see what I like or don't like about it. Yeah. 
And if they're really, I joke, if the kids are kind of pissing you off that day, you can make it harder where you just like hold, press away, bring back in. And you could do presses too where you're like, here, hold it, 10 presses. I used to do a, uh, like a shoulder finisher at my first mm. internship where uh, it would almost be like driving the bus, like turn for time, make like little like uh, perturbations up and down, side to side, and then mix it. Yeah, you can do <laughs> There's a lot you can do with that and a lot of benefit to things like that. So I guess I actually have used them, but I use them for a completely different um, goal. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, the magic how if you just tell someone, oh, we're doing this to work the core, where they're just like, oh, I really feel it. Meanwhile, if you're like, oh, we're working the shoulders, they're like, oh, I really feel it. It's a strange thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, I already kind of told everyone what I don't like, my least favorite one. Granted, it's not a bad exercise. What is your least favorite anti-extension exercise that you, you struggle with, you don't really use? Oh, God. I mean, um, anti-extension specifically, I mean, it's got to still be the plank. Um, specifically anti-extension, I like most of them. Um, a lot of them need to be hard, like coached a lot harder than most people do. Um, so I'm going to take a, I'm going to take like a little poetic license on that question. And I'm going to say that, uh, the bird dog is one of my favorites, but also needs to be coached a lot harder than most people will. Um, that can be one of the hardest core exercises yet. Most people based on feel go, wait, how does this do core? I don't get this. So I think I'm, again, I'm, 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 I'm switching the question as you asked it. To yeah. um, the bird dog is an exercise that I would like to see get coached a lot harder than it does because that can be a very effective core exercise, but not if you know it doesn't have that intent. I um, honestly, I totally agree. I think the bird dog is someone who like I got to meet McGill, meet a lot of his uh, colleagues. I think it's overdone and undercoached, and it's not a bad thing. I just think most people don't really truly understand how it's supposed to be done. A lot of times they see it online, it's bastardized online. It's not done correctly. In addition to that, it's also really hard to understand the oris or, like, you know, the, the aura of an exercise, how it's supposed to be completed by just reading its book if you haven't seen it in person. So some of the biggest mistakes I see on that are, A, they don't have that front arm extended and close to their ear, right? Your elbow should be locked out, arm to ear, and, it's just, and you need to make a fist. So a lot of times I see people with that, they're just holding the position, which, as we know, doesn't do anything. And that back leg, that back leg should either be perfectly straight with your toe touching the ground, or if you have a history of back issues, you should have a little bend in that back knee, and the toe should be on the ground, toe curled to you. Uh, a lot of times, the biggest issue I see on the trail side is people kick their leg up and out in the air, and you're not really doing anything. You're just kind of exercising and expending energy. And it's more of a matter of, I don't think people really truly understand how it's supposed to be done. They just think, oh, you need opposite arm, opposite leg. It works. But it doesn't. Uh some tricks I've used to clean up that is, A, make a fist. If they won't make a fist and they still don't feel it, have them hold a tennis ball or a lacrosse ball so they can actually squeeze it. Because as you know, like when you squeeze something, you get that neural drive. You'll get engagement through your triceps, your biceps, back into your lats and your traps. And you're going to start to feel some of that tension. And on that back leg, I don't tell them. I tell them to pretty much try to squeeze their calf or their foot. And if they really don't understand how to do that, I tell them to squeeze their ass. I was like, whatever, so if your right leg's back, I'm like, hey, squeeze that butt cheek, and they'll feel that stiffen, and I was like, hold that for five deep breaths, and whether they do it correctly or not, I can't tell you, but a lot of times they report back, oh yeah, I definitely feel that, and I was like, after five breaths, switch sides, and repeat twice.
Yeah, and something else I like for my younger athletes, um, just because they don't know how to control their body. So if I ask them to do some of those things, they may put in a genuine, like, effort, but they still can't do it. So I get, I put them into the, like, the full, like, the end range position where arms extended, foot's extended, and then I'll just kind of move them around so that they feel what it's like to resist me. And then that kind of, like, gives them the feeling of um, what they should be feeling when they do it on their own. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It's just like what we say. It's like you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. And I think a lot of times you get with athletes, they don't, their body, the body doesn't know what it doesn't know until you show it doesn't know it. I know that's a conundrum, but if you think about it, it makes sense. No, it does. All right, because I can't say that again. That was a tongue twister. Don't. All right. With that in mind, uh, let's go to the next one. What is your favorite lateral, anti-lateral flexion? So if you're kind of, let's think, we'll sum it up. You're working oblique, erector spinae area, TAs a bit. Uh, so my favorite anti-lateral flexion, um, it actually might be switching to the rolling plank. But at this oh, point, because I don't have a... I don't have I don't have enough uh I don't have enough experience with it myself even though I feel pretty good with it and I also haven't used it enough with my athletes. Um, some of my kids are starting to get it right now. Um, like I did like a million programs the other day and I threw it that into probably like a third of them just to see can can they do it how does it go do I like it whatever. But um, starting with is a side plank. I just I like the side plank. Um, again, if I'm not having my athletes hold for time then it'll be like a thread the needle. That way they can rep it out and still keep that control. And um, that's my that's that's my favorite lateral anti-lateral flexion exercise. All right. You stole my thunder a little bit, and I'm purposely not going to pick a farmer or a suitcase carry because we've already talked about that, and it's well documented how I feel about that. Uh, Correct. But rolling plank also is one of mine. I'm going to explain a little more and then go into another one is – Mainly due to the fact that I learned it through McGill, and I kind of follow him for whatever he says. Like, I, I take him verbatim from my back injury. But the rolling plank is a great one. I think the side plank for most people, not your general public, but for most people who are somewhat athletic or strive to be greater than just functional health, it's too easy, right? It's like it, it, at some point I understand simple is better, but you need some complexity in that exercise for them to respect it. And that's what well, I think the rolling plank. Yeah, well, the thing I like about the rolling plank and thread the needle is it also exhibits control. There, there's an element to holding and resisting lateral flexion. But there's also an element to be able to control that stability. Yeah, I think that's huge, and it's undervalued. Uh, so with the rolling plank, my favorite variation that I'm on to now is I think it's really good. You're going to get the one set of 20 each side. Now with the rolling plank, if you haven't seen it, you can just look on Golfers A Lift or Mass Performance. We have it right on that Instagram page. There's three variations. When you get it, you can go arm against your leg, which is the easiest. After that, you go arm to the side, bent to mirror like you're in a plank. And then the third one is you want to telescope that arm all the way out. And what you're doing is you're really creating uh, more movement in the frontal plane, the urge to resist it. So that's the great part. The side plank itself is a stationary frontal plane exercise that teaches you how to resist. But when you add that rolling aspect to it, you're transversing planes and teaching uh, greater frontal plane stability, transverse plane stability, and when you're in that locked-in position, now you're resisting, uh, you're learning how to be stable in the sagittal plane also. So it's one exercise that Stuart McGill really popularized that comes up with so many variations to help 
uh, that can almost cover everything. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. I am a little sick, and I got a little tickle in my throat. Uh, but for me, I'd have to say, if I'm not going to pick the rolling plane, because you already picked that, something that's grown on me greatly is a standing single-arm banded or cable row, done correctly. I think it's so much harder than people give it credit for, and it's easy to fit into your program. Uh, it's a really easy accessory movement or warm-up movement. I've added three sets of 15 to 20, two to three times a week. With that, you want to stand in that athletic stance again to start. Elbow about a fist away from your body. From there, all you're going to do is pull in, and then on that opposite side, just don't let it move. You've got to create tension to your upper side, and you'll just feel it light up, your TAs, your QLs, your erector spinae. And it's had such a functional application to sport, human life, that it's underutilized and it's overthought of where it's done so so poorly a lot of the times where people just think about it and they're just doing it as fast as possible. But I challenge you, add in a 3-3 three, three, uh, three tempo and you'll notice people will get lit up. Like uh, to the point where that actually will engage my trunk more than the rolling planks. And it's something that can easily sit in because we're in this functional world where people want one single arm push, a single arm pull, a double arm push, a double arm pull. It's a great pairing to have on the days where you're not barbell rowing or doing a horizontal row. Uh, how do you progress it? For me, I've always started with a start with less resistance, tempo, always keep your tempo because it's really easy to do sloppy with no tempo, single arm, uh, single arm double leg stance, from there you can go single arm split stance, from single arm split stance to get really good, you can go single arm, single leg, so right arm, left leg, and you're really challenging that frontal plane, you're staying stable in the sagittal, and you're resisting, and by default you're resisting transverse because that band's going to want to pull and rotate you. It's a really easy way to work in all those factors with an advanced athlete or moderately to advanced uh, gen pop client who's looking for a little bit of a challenge. How do you feel about that, Bobby? Yeah, I mean, I like the exercise. I like the I like the thoughts behind it. Personally, I would put in a slightly different category, but I don't really want to argue semantics because the exercise is still good. It is something I still use. Um, but yeah, I would I would probably put it somewhere else. What would you put it in, just for us, just so they can know? Yeah, I mean, so I think if 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 we're because when we talk core stability, there obviously is a co-contraction to kind of everything. Yeah. Um, so you you you're, you can't be like wrong by with with something, but I think it's primary. Um, depending now, this is going to depend on setup a little bit too, but I would say its primary is either anti-rotation or even anti-flexion. Now that it's that's really going to depend on setup and how you do it. Um, so that's why I didn't really want to get into, like, you know, oh, well, that's not anti-lateral flexion. It's this, but it's also maybe this, except, you know what, you're not wrong at the same time either. But um, I think depending on how you set it up and what you do with it, it might have more of an anti-rotation or an anti-flexion. Yeah, I think that was just an incident of the host ignoring the question and just saying what he wants to say. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, accidentally though, I didn't mean to do that, but you are right. And, uh, and I also think, so people who just, uh, the Nazis out there who think it needs to be like, oh, perfect. Yes. I know that's like a single arm pull. That's a horizontal pull exercise, but we're using it in the context of kind of like a warm up or end of a lift. It's just a little different. All right. So our last one, let's go into your favorite overall core exercise. So we did anti-lateral flexion, anti-extension. We could do anti-flexion, but anti-flexion and extension kind of. Very much the same thing. Most exercises that work anti-extension will work anti-flexion. 
Well, I would say also my my favorite anti-flexion exercises are deadlifts and rows. So they're not they're not what you would consider traditional core exercises. Yes, uh, you kind of stole the thunder out of my my uh, sails right there, the wind out of my sails, because I was going to bring up uh, squat, deadlift. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. So, uh, one. So what my one of my favorite um, core exercises specifically, and maybe maybe I'm just going to go with this. It's a little you know less utilized. I like a wall press leg lower. So you lay on your back, you push a wall. Both legs are straight up in the air, and then you lower the leg one at a time. So you're going to get a little bit of anti-extension. You're going to get a little bit of anti-rotation. More extension than rotation, I, I would put it in an anti-extension category, but um, you will get a, a little bit of anti-rotation. You also get a little bit of hip mobility. Since everyone's so damn concerned with their straight leg raise, this is one of those exercises that actually helps with that. So we're going to get some hip hinge um some hip hinge benefits in addition to the core stability benefits. Um, if an athlete literally cannot get their legs into that position, then I just give them a dead bug in the same yeah, spot. I, I agree. I think so, the dead bug is the easy one that you can just you can you can progress it and regress it in so many ways. You can go like contralateral, ipsilateral, uh, bilateral, like you know what I mean. Oh, you can load one side with a kettlebell. You can press against the wall. I think there's a million variations that you can use that will someone will find effective. I agree. Now, with that in mind, I guess if I had to select mine, I'm going to go back to the first podcast. So if you didn't listen, shame on you. I'm going to pick uh, suitcase carry, march in place. And you know what? I, I, I like I like that because I've actually. So my facility obviously it allows us to carry for pretty significant distances. Um, yeah. We have 30 yards of turf, but something that I've thought about is obviously as we get busier, there's not enough room sometimes for people to farm and carry down the turf. Yeah. And um, I've actually thought a lot about either in place or kneeling to standing variations for those things, but go on. Yeah. So mine is in place, and a lot of it has to do with I've noticed if I ask athletes to carry – uh, dumbbell, kettlebell, whatever it is, when they're within like five feet of me, it's going to look really good. But when they walk away and they start to get tired, like they're going to rest it on their hip, their shoulder's going to pop up, they're going to use their trap. A lot of that stuff we talked about in the first podcast. Uh, but I noticed if you kind of ask them to go in place and say if we're going to do like uh, ISO holds where I'm just like left leg up, I can easily just monitor the whole room or me and someone else can monitor it very fast. And I've noticed you, the, like, how many dumbbells or kettlebells you need can be drastically reduced. Because if you do it in place, you can easily just ask one of your athletes to hold a 45-pound plate or hold the 25-pound plate. And if they can't hold it, just stick their fingers through the hole there, elbow down. Granted, are we getting the grip I'd like to see out of it? No, but it's always a give and take. But you could ask them just to hold that plate off their waist. Be like, left leg up, 10 seconds. Count from 10 to 1. Switch, 10 to 1. Then you can go march, 1. 10 marches. Then you can count them out be like, 1. Two, three, four. And then if you want to, you can spice it up and be like, hey, on four, you can be like, four, pause, hold it. And it's really fast. We can get it in under 30 seconds to a minute. You can really attack uh, everything. But you can also do so many variations, like we were saying before. I'll do it with suitcase. You can do it with the farmer. You can do it with the goblet position hold with the plate. Or you can use the dumbbell, kettlebell, depending on how many people you have. It's very simplistic, and it works. I like that a lot because... Uh, 
because, you know, I was, I was talking earlier with like the plank. One of the things I hate is I hate timing and people being on different schedules. If you do a march where people are upright, you can just park them in front of a clock and they can count off time that way too. That way you don't have to do it. You know, it's going to actually be the time that you want. I like it. I do. I, you know, it's something that grew on me, and if the safer is my idea, it'd be a lie. I, when I was at UMass, I saw the coaches there with the football team implement it really well, and I was like, oh, that's smart. I should have thought of that one day, and I was like, I'm going to use that. Uh, I always like to bring it up to you guys because I feel like you're in a great uh, setting where it's easy to implement in terms of, like, you guys have big teams, bigger groups, where you can experiment it, and you can, you can get instant feedback whether it works or not. Because, like I say, if it's not going to work with, like, 14- to 18-year-olds, uh, although my kids might be older, it's probably going to not work with 18 to 21. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, if, if, you know, the 12-year-olds can sometimes be a pain, but they're, per- I mean, they're, they're pretty reflective of people. Yeah. Like the things you see with them are the things you're going to see uh, with older people. Older people will just probably pay attention a little bit longer. Yeah, that makes sense. I think we did a great job covering this, so let's just spend a couple minutes. Uh, we'll shoot the shit, talk about what's going on. So what have you been doing in your training recently? Uh, me personally, so I'm on, um, I'm on my fifth phase of the, uh, pro fifth of five phases that I, I put together with a vertical strength and power focus. And, um, that's where I wanted to move into, um, some higher swing speeds for golf. So I'm halfway through the fifth phase and, um, um, I did clusters last phase, got my ass absolutely handed to me. So now I'm back to just like straight traditional sets. Um, work in, uh, first week was three sets of three, then I did five sets of two. Next week will be six sets of one, and then I'll deload on week four on my main side. That's not bad. That sounds actually pretty fun. Are you still going to work in those Olympic lifts? So I haven't been. Um, just frankly, the way I the way I had been incorporating some of that stuff was on like a like an off day, like a Wednesday or a Saturday when I typically don't lift, and um, I've just I haven't made the time on those days to do those things. Like I haven't even been swinging the um, the super speed sticks for golf either. So it's not just the Olympic lifts that are getting sacrificed. It's just about everything. Yeah, don't don't uh don't get into it. Olympic lifts are a waste of time. I, I love them and hate them. You saw the video I sent you. I almost killed myself yesterday. Yeah, that has nothing. That's not the Olympic lifts' fault, though. No, I know. It was funny. I was just like, oh shit. Uh, it's just me being spoiled. Like where I train at all the time. Like we have almost those uh, J hooks that we can slide right in. There's no lift on it. Like the lift is so minimal. It's literally like the size, like the lift of an iPhone case. It's like that's like the how tall it is. So like when I went to the other place and trained, they have the older style like power lift J hooks where it's like a big hook, and I got the right side in and I hit the left off the hook and I like almost if I didn't bail out of that I probably would have broke my back. <laughs> if you still have that video, you should post it on the Instagram once this comes out. Yeah, I'll put it on Master for me. It's funny. It is funny. You can just I'll save it to the end. At the end, I was like, oh fuck, I almost died. <laughs> And it's, it was stupid because I was just doing snatch grip push press. Like, there's no reason you should ever almost die doing a snatch grip push press. Yeah, but you know what happens when you don't pay attention? 
I know, and it's funny because it's on me. I was actually I'm de- I was deloaded that week. That was the end of the deload week because I only had like 75 kilos, and I was like, oh, this is easy. I was like, I'll be fine. Or it's like 75 or 80 kilos. I was like, and I wasn't taking it as serious as I should. And I feel like that happens to me a lot during deload weeks. But like during like a regular the, the weeks I'm not deloaded, I'm just like locked in. I don't think about anything else until I rack the bar and then I like shut off real quick before my next set. But I was just like, you could just tell I was like not. I was not focusing. I was talking to someone else. That's how it goes. Oh, yeah. All right. So with that in mind, um, I have something else I wanted to add. You brought up why you like that kettlebell pullover. It, it links back to what I was reading about at Kabuki Strength and Kabuki Labs where he talks about flared ribcage position, and I thought this applied a lot. And it's great. It's actually very beneficial to teach an athlete not to have that because it just leaks power. And when they have that flared ribcage, which is very common – they're going to always usually be in a lumbar, uh, excessive lumbar extension, whether you can notice it or not. And they're really going to start grinding through the thoracic lumbar joints. So that T12, the L1 area, is going to always be an extension, and they're going to get a lot of cranky back pain there. Um, but, like, a symptom of that is usually is if they don't, they extend it to a point where they really can't extend and it starts to hurt, they'll start to flare that ribcage out. Now, this is in generalization because sometimes the ribcage can flare without that, but a lot of times you'll see that flared ribcage, and you'll see those athletes who have a really lean body mass, have lean body mass and have a good body fat percentage, but they will never really show their abdominals, if that makes sense. Because they're so extended, the abdominals are stretched. We don't never really see that true six-pack, but a lot of times when you fix that with the exercise that Bobby were talking about and greater posture control and awareness, you'll see that natural V come back, so on and so forth. And the guy from Kabuki Strength goes into it on one of his, um, on his website about how he was lean. He was like, I was like 15, 12% body fat my whole life. And he's like, I never had abs. And he was like, well, I guess I'm just one of those people that'll never have abs. But then he learned at 30, he's like, oh, my rib cage is screwed up. I'm extending through my uh, L1, T12, L1. And he's like, within six months, I had a six pack. Perfect. Symmetrical. And I was like, oh, oh, finish. No, you're good. That was it. I was grabbing some water. Oh, 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 so well, the other thing too with like that that ribcage position is when it comes to speed and like running speed, um, athletes need to have thoracic extension for speed. So if they have a flared ribcage, that means they're going to be grinding through their lumbar spine or the TL junction. They're not getting thoracic extension, which will rob them of speed. So they may like, oh man, I'm doing everything. I'm strong and I, I just can't get any faster, well, they, they don't have the core stability to lock down the rib cage. They cannot extend through their T-spine, and that robs them of speed. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's great to bring up because people don't think about it. Um, so with our last topic, what are you doing right now for continuing education? What are you reading? What are you uh, watching? Who are you following? Like, just uh, tell us what you're doing to keep learning. I know you guys are busy over there, but you, you like to pretend you don't read and don't follow people, but you do. Yeah, um, I will say I haven't been good about it lately. Um, what I what I've been tra- honestly what I've been trying to do lately is just kind of uh, learn, mess around with, kind of evaluate, and so it, it's less like you know learning off of other people and more. So the last like the last stuff I was going through was a little bit of Stu McGill and um, how it relates to the golf swing, and you know trying to develop hip power, not from the spine. So then, you know, you t- I've, I've been, what I've been trying to do is take that 
and then kind of build off it. So if like there there are certain exercises that we use in golf or we is the the industry, I, I'm very resistant to most things because I don't if I don't understand something I ain't using it. But um I've what I've been trying to do is just like learn about what some of these people are doing, why they're doing it, um, what's the goal? Is it what I think? Is it not? Does it go against what I think? Or does it just flat out not make a lot of sense because we just don't know enough about it? So in terms of like learning off of other people is I'm kind of almost trying to put into place some of the stuff that I learned, you know, a few months ago, maybe a couple months was um, just looking at it. it and he, he was talking about with the golf swing, but the same stuff relates with, um, with our exercises when we train. So I've been trying to put some of that stuff together and see what I can formulate and see where I'm wrong, where I'm right, or where I think I'm right and where I'm definitely wrong. But what are you working on? Uh, yeah, I'll get right into that in a second. But before I said, what's funny is uh, one of my old bosses I was shooting the shit with brought it up, and he was like, you know what's funny about the Stuart McGill stuff? Everyone thinks it's revolutionary. But it really, if you really want to break it down to the meat and potatoes, it says respect the confines of your body and train with perfect posture. Yeah, I mean, and again, none of this stuff is revolutionary. Like, no, but I never like thought we, of it until until he until he voiced it. I never thought of it. In the second yeah, he what, says it, I'm like, huh, that's stupid. And then I realize how many things don't go in line with what he said, and I'm like, wow, okay. Actually, yeah, people don't think about it. it. It's like he yeah. brings it up. He's like an example of something like we use Olympic lifters, where a lot of time he talks about it, he's like. You see Olympic lifters, he's like, you know, they have a vertical spine, vertical torso when they catch and clean. He's like, they don't have much shear force. But in one of his podcasts, he's like, you notice all the Olympic lifters that generally stay healthy. Granted, no one at an elite level is healthy. So I take that for granted. Understand I'm, I'm exaggerating here. He's like, a lot of times, he's like, they spent years getting strong. He's like, and uh, think of like Chinese Olympic weightlifters, like Tia Tao and all these great ones. He's like, their deadlift is like 600 pounds. They, they like have a 280 pound deadlift or 280 kilo deadlift. They have like a 220 kilo squat, 230 kilo squat. So they can lift every day when they clean and snatch because it's like 150, 170 kilos. It's always dynamic. It's never strenuous. And I think a lot of times like he brings that up with like some of the power lifters who made it forever where they would squat like two or three times a week. He's like, they spent their time getting super strong, getting this adaptation. So when they do dynamic effort at 400 pounds, it's not bad for them because there's no stress on the system. And, uh, like, he brought all this up. And, like, in one of his podcasts, he talks about how everyone's just, like, they're so concerned about being strong fast. He's like, it takes time. He's like, it takes time for your body to adapt, the callus, your muscle to grow, your ligaments to adapt, your body to get stiffer. But people want to rush it. And he's like, that's why I see so many people. He's like, if you're, he's like, I'll probably see you. He didn't say in his podcast, but that's how I think about it. If you went from never squatting to squatting like four or 500 pounds max in a year, you're probably going to end up broken soon because the rate you had to push to get there, if it wasn't natural, is so fast and so hard on your body, you're going to get breakdown. And it's like when I was talking to my boss and we're shooting the shit about that, he's like, a lot of times he's like, just respect it. He's like, there's nothing wrong with squatting a couple times a week if only one day is really heavy. But he's like, people don't respect it. They want to push the envelope. He's like, they want to max every day. He's like, and, like, McGill goes into all these rants and talks about how, like, you need your body to adapt. Your, uh, it's, like, muscles take time to recover. He's, like, what about bones? He's, like, bones get less oxygen and less blood supply than uh, muscle itself. So, he's, like, those take about five to seven days to callus and grow. He's, like, to lift weight, you need big bones. 
but he's like, everyone always disrespects it. They think it's not me. They think everyone, everyone always thinks they're that one special cookie who can bend their back and round it out a thousand times and still be able to pull like 500 pounds from the ground. That was my rant. Sorry. Well, dude, we're, not, we're see, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing too because with the golf swing, people, golfers don't want to be lifters, right? Because it, it's different. It's, you know, whatever bullshit reason you can think of. But now one of the biggest products is super speed. And the super speed system is three clubs. They, um, they're different weights. The way they typically go is lighter to heavier so that your pathways are kind of fired up and, you know, you're getting that fire. And then when you use the heavier club, you're producing more force than you would have if you didn't. But, um, what people are trying to do is people are trying to swing out of their shoes. So they're going from swinging 100 miles an hour and they're trying to swing 120 miles an hour. There's only like 17 guys on the PGA Tour swinging 120 miles an hour consistently or average. A lot yeah. of guys are lower than you, but now everyone's trying to do it and ignoring the fact that, you know, maybe you should do this over time. Maybe you should think about instead of swinging 120 in, you know, two months, how about I just swing faster? and then slowly progress and make my time, and instead of chasing a number and trying to get there as fast as I can, why don't I just, like, look for better, like, look for more, even if it's, yeah. like, a, a, a mile an hour every other week or something? No, and I'm trying to take the same approach. Like, right now I'm just doing, like, with my own training, I'm doing a linear progression for the whole semester from – I've been doing it from January to – May, because I'm one of those where I hurt my back a while ago, and it's never so much my back, but now I protect that so much and worry about st keeping that stable that I've let the rest of my body go to shit, right? So I was like, I scaled it back, and I was like, I, and so, so the listeners know I think my best back squat is like 160 kilos. Right now I'm at 120 for five by three with a second pause in the bottom, and each week I'll add four to five kilos, whatever equates closest to the 10 pound jump, and when then get to when I get to a point where I can't really hit those five sets of three, I'll go five sets of two. After I go five sets of two, I'm going to work it all the way back and go to like 10 sets of three hypertrophy because I don't think anyone's truly run a linear progression till it runs out. Like no one's ever done it where you do it, like you do the true linear where you're doing like maybe three reps at a time, five sets of three, and you run that till it doesn't work. No one ever does it because they get bored. But like they, they, he speaks about that, McGill, Brian Carroll, uh, the guys from Kabuki Strength, everyone speaks about how, like, sometimes no one's ever run it till it doesn't work, like you're saying, with club speed. Like, have you ever truly just taken that six months knowing you might not be better than Bobby right now, but in six months, who knows, you might be swinging faster because you didn't rush the process. You trusted it. Where you're, like, you're squatting heavy once a week, you're doing what you need, you're adding that 10 pounds, you're doing maybe a little dynamic effort on the Friday or lighter weights and volume, but no one ever truly runs it that way. They just, like, everyone wants results now. And to say it's, like, just general sector people, I don't think it's true. I think strength coaches, we're the worst violators of that. We're like, we're just like, I, like I find it all the time. I'm like, well, I got 120, which is really, it's going to be easy. I was like, I should do what well, I got 120 tomorrow on Monday. And I was like, oh, this is going to be really easy. I should, and if you don't, if I lie to you, if I told you in the back of my head, that voice wasn't there, it just says go 125 and speed up the process. Well, dude, it's funny too with like my front squats. I didn't do it for so long and my knee was bothering me for even longer. Um, yeah. it was one of those things where I started so embarrassingly light that was almost like a shame to be doing it. And yeah. now I'm back up to probably approaching like some of my best ever front squats and it's really not all that bad. And I mean, I still don't want to do it, but I do. So it's, but it's really not that bad. 
and um, it doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon either. Yeah. The goal is just to get out of shame as fast as possible. Uh, well, honestly, it was just I, I, like that. That was it. Was I mean, maybe a touch conservative, but every time I try to do everything quickly, it just doesn't. It goes to shit. So how can I put it? I, I agree. Myself, when I, I do this time, I go. You know what? You suck at squatting anyway, so no one's gonna like your numbers even when they're the highest. So yeah. whatever, just you know, be bad at them, but do it the right way. No, that makes sense. Like my biggest goal is I just want to get that squat back up to like 160, and I want my deadlift right back again at 184 where I was doing singles before I got hurt. And because uh, truthfully, like in my mind, I was like, maybe in my wildest dreams, I might pull 130 kilo clean one day. But I was like, right now, I'm just fighting to clean 120. So I was like, in my head, I'm like, that is such a, stra- a big difference in weight that anytime I clean, it's not as taxing on the system. It's obviously taxing, but it's not, um, I'm not getting some great bone adaptation, muscle adaptation from it. It's more dynamic effort and tiring where I still need to recover, but I'm not going to have to recover for those five days. Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really good point, too, with all that. That's what people forget, man. I was like, they look at these Olympic lifters, and I think CrossFit's the biggest violation of it, where people come in and they want to get strong fast, and I was like, how many times I've told you I've seen, well, I'll, I'll go there and lift, because I have to travel a decent amount for the listeners who don't know. I'm in the military back home. I'm down in D.C. I'll come visit Bobby, breaks. I'll travel, so I'll train at a decent amount of CrossFit gyms for drop-ins, and I'll shoot the crap with some people, and you got so many people who can only front squat, like I'll say the male is like 275, and I'm watching them trying to get under 245-pound, 255-pound cleans, and they wonder why they're stuck. I was like, dude, you're playing with fire. I was like, I was like, even look at the great CrossFit athletes. Look at Frazier. I was like, Frazier can front squat close to 400, 500 pounds, so he can easily sit under a 365-pound clean like nothing. It's not strenuous to him because it – his max front squat is 100 pounds off, like 120 pounds higher. Like he has this whole strength reserve that keeps him safe, where he's not, like if he can say, he's only going to screw up if he doesn't pay attention. Like his body is strong enough to be able to handle the load of the cleans. But if like an example, so say me and you, Bobby, where like I think my front squat was like 125, 125 kilos or 285 pounds for singles, and I'm just going to assume, say you're 265, 275, if we're trying to constantly sit under 120 kilo clean or 115 or 110, we're playing with fire. Yeah, dude, I completely, I'm actually, I completely agree. If it sounds like I'm checked out, it's actually because I'm writing notes down because I oh. really like the stuff that you're talking about. And uh, my, my brain is kind of going right now. Yeah. So to segue into the next point, because I'm a nerd. What am I getting right now? I just finished a metabolic code. It's uh, pretty good. It talks a lot about nutrition and health. Uh, the biggest takeaway it gave people is your thyroid's probably screwed up. You probably have bad adrenal glands. And uh, the way to test that is do you wake up in the middle of the night between the hours of 1 and 3 consistently? Do you have uh, bags under your eyes that are discolored? And if you ever see a photo of me, it looks like I got beat up. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to fix that. Uh, in addition to that, it talks about how to go over allergies and sensitivities, like uh, eliminate foods from your diet. And it just tells you the easy way to do it is just do one at a time because if you try to do it all at once, A, you're not going to know what your food sensitivities are, and B, you're probably not going to do it successfully because we're creatures of habit. Uh, after that, it goes into uh, vegetables, uh, something I'm striving to do right now. It wants you to eat 64 ounces of vegetables a day. So if those of you who are bad at math, that's eight cups of vegetables. It's a lot of vegetables. It's hard. I'm trying to do it. But just be aware that gas comes with that. Uh, but I can honestly tell you I've never felt better in my life at this point. Where, like, I've done that. I haven't really – I've added vegetables to my diet. I haven't cut 
calories or done a cut and I went from about 15 to 18% body fat to now I'm about 12 to 15 on the regs daily, about a month later. And that's changing nothing in my diet. That was just emphasizing taking the supplements they told me for adrenal support, thyroid support, and uh, eating the vegetables. And I've, I've dropped about 5% body fat on average. What are you doing to eat that many vegetables? Are you buying them frozen, fresh, cooking them, raw? What are you doing? All right, so to do the vegetables, uh, I get at least five servings of fresh vegetables a day. I have, um, I spent the money and I ordered um, greens because I physically don't have enough time to eat all those vegetables. But I take two servings of the greens in the morning, which count for, uh, it's, I think it counts for three servings of vegetables, fruits and, ve- fruits and veggies a day. And uh, yeah. I just went to Whole Foods to get that. I got the best one available. I know it's expensive and people might complain, but at the end of the day, like, uh, better stuff costs more. It is what it is. Yeah, this, uh, you know what, though? There's some out there that aren't that bad. No, no, not bad at all. But you can get some good ones. It's just like I'm in D.C. I don't know the area that well, and I was like, I looked at the Whole Foods one. I, I researched it online. I was like, all right, I'll take it. It was like 50 bucks, and I was like, $50 a month to equate to two ser- three servings of vegetables a day for 30 days, 90 servings of vegetables. I was like, a bag of vegetables, if you got the frozen organic ones, like three bucks. I was like, I'm not that far off. Also, if you if you are someone, and obviously, you know, maybe you can't drop 50 bucks on the supplement, uh, I will say I a few years ago I used to buy the greens, and I stopped because I'm a loser. But um, Whole Foods actually used to sometimes have them, like, either buy one, get one half, or buy one, get one free, so keep your eye out. Guys, this is Mass Performance Podcast. Uh, this is our fourth or fifth episode. Honestly, we don't remember. We're going to try to keep bringing one to you every two to three weeks. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can follow us on Mass Performance Podcast on Instagram. If you have any other questions with that in mind, please slide in our DMs and let us know what we can do better, what you'd like to hear us talk about. Uh, if we need any further explanation on anything, we know we're not great with our social media. We're trying to give you two to three posts a week of quality content and information.